uh, the Old Testament. And as I said, we're taking a break from our normal series during Advent to consider some texts related to the promise of and the, and the coming of the Messiah. And so this morning we're in Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. And uh, the text is there if you just want to follow in the order of worship. Uh, this will actually be a reading tonight at Lessons and Carols. One of, one of the readings will be this text. Um, you know, in our church, something we try to emphasize as, is that you're not saved by works. Uh, you're not, you know, saved by church attendance. But if you were, uh, you would want to be at Lessons and Carols tonight, for sure. <laughs> FYI. But you're not. But it'd be great to have you. Isaiah 11, uh, beginning in verse 1. Dana and I have three children, and um, we've had children now for 10 years, and in that time we've uh, read a good many children's books and uh, watched children's movies. And I, it's interesting to read some of these books, some that I even grew up with, and uh, watch these movies, almost none of which I grew up with, through adult eyes. <clears throat> and one thing that becomes pretty apparent pretty quickly is that uh, in children's books and movies, let's say children's entertainment, not just in the words, but in the way things are pictured and portrayed, it really gets at yearnings that we all have, uh, the way we want things to be. And I'll give you an example. Look in a children's book about when someone goes to a store. When someone goes to a store in a child's book, it, it usually looks nothing like a big box store. You know, it doesn't look like a giant 12 acres under one roof mega store. It almost always looks like Main Street when they go to the shop or the, or the store or the little library. And, and that's saying something about us. Another one that I've noticed is that there's this yearning for a world where even the scary things... They can still be there. They're just not scary anymore. All right, for instance, in the most recent Ice Age movie, okay, Dawn of the Dinosaurs, th- there's a scene toward the beginning where um, this, this saber-toothed tiger is chasing an antelope. Antelope, is that right? And, you know, the antelope is just racing furiously, just wide-eyed. The saber-toothed tiger is closing in. It's these giant, you know, he's saber-toothed. And uh, closing in, and then all of a sudden they stop, and the saber-toothed tiger's just going, and the antelope's just laughing at him because they're friends. So this was all just kind of a put-on. They're just playing. No one's going to eat anybody anybody else. Um, Monsters, Inc. I mean, they are monsters, but they're sweet monsters, you know. And not only do we love them, they love us. So it's okay. They're still monsters. Um, where the wild things are? Okay, the wild things are there. They're on the island. But you know what happens? This little boy pulls up in his boat, in his pajamas, and they crown him king. And they put a crown on his head, and, you know, he's, he's the, the rumpus, you know, they're walking with the... Have you all read where the wild things are? Okay, that's good. <clears throat> Tough crowd. Uh, Little boy in his pajamas, these monsters are like three times larger than him. Nobody's getting eaten. Everything's safe. Now, the reason that I throw that out is this text 
is a prophecy of the advent. And it's, it's a prophecy of a world transformed by the advent of the Messiah. But here's the thing. The world that this text describes, this prophecy, has not been seen in our day. We have not seen the world that's described in this prophecy of the Messiah coming. Why is that? Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal For the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, as we come to your word, we would acknowledge that Stephen is Robert prayed a moment ago, the world is amazing. This earth is a jewel. It is precious. And yet it is fallen and broken. And the center cannot hold. And all of us have been affected and hurt by that in our bodies and souls. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear... of the world transformed by your Son. Enable us to hear what we need to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you saw uh, Talladega Nights or not. Again, in our church, we value rough transitions (laughs) and awkward segues. 
This may be the part of uh, the MP3 that will be edited out when it's posted on our website. I don't know. But I can't read this entire scene because a lot of it is uh, very sacrilegious. But it, it, it reminds me of Monty Python material where it can be sacrilegious, but it hits on some very insightful things simultaneously. There's a scene in this movie, <clears throat> Ricky Bobby's played by Will Ferrell, very funny, of course, and he is saying grace. He's, he's praying uh, at, at this, I guess, Thanksgiving meal or this, this feast, and um, as he's praying, he keeps directing his prayers to Jesus as a baby. And so I'm going to pick it up about halfway here. He says, Dear tiny infant Jesus. And his wife, Carly Bobby, stops him and says, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. To which Ricky says, well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best. And I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. And it goes from there. <laughs> now, it, it's, a ludicrous, it's a ludicrous scene. And, and in fact, right, just right on the heels of that, his wife says, yeah, but I want you to do grace good so that we can win this race tomorrow. And sacrilegious, but it is hitting on why do we pray what we pray and how do we, how do we frame Jesus in our, in our prayers and in our own thoughts. Um. Advent, we tend to put most of the, the eggs of our, you know, feelings and, and uh, aspirations and reflection during this time appropriately on the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And the thing is, when you, when you read this text that I just read that we're going to be looking at, we in this room have got a tremendous advantage because... If you read this and didn't know how all this was going to play out, you would, you would think, appropriately, that everything that's being promised here happens at one time. That there is this promised person. It's interesting, this overlaps with what we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at these texts of the prophecy of this one coming who's a branch. He's a branch from the line of David. It said it twice in Jeremiah. Same imagery used here. Jesse, the name that's in uh, this text, that was David's dad. And so to be the root of Jesse or the shoot or the branch is to come from David's line. If you read this text, people that originally received it, seven or eight hundred years before Jesus, you would think all this is going to happen when he shows up. You and I have a tremendous advantage. And it's this, is that we have the rest of the Bible to highlight that Jesus has two advents. And there's the first one that's the celebration for the next few weeks, the incarnation, that first coming when he comes in weakness and poverty and frailty. And the rest of his life, he's not a rich guy and he doesn't look like a king. He looks like a Jewish peasant the rest of his life. But that is not what the second advent will be like. And... You know, I don't think anybody would probably pray uh, as crass a prayer. Maybe you would. I don't know. But uh, I don't think anybody would pray as crassly as, as that scene. But it is easy 
to default into freezing Jesus where we like him. I like him going to bat for the marginalized. I like him, I like him getting on to religious people. And boy, did he do that. I like that. And to freeze him there but not let him be all that he is. The second advent will let us see all that he is. And it's appropriate in advent for us to stop and think about both the advents. Both of them. All right, And I want to look at both of them from this text. So <clears throat> the first advent, how do you see it? You really get it in these first few verses. And again, a lot of this overlaps with last week. First off, he's the, he's the branch, he's the root, he's the shoot of the line of Jesse. <clears throat> he's from the line of King David. And it's interesting right here that it talks about being of the line of Jesse because in a way, here's, what's, here's what that's saying. He's not just going to be descended from David. There were a bunch of people descended from David, and some of them were these atrocious kings, evil kings, that drug the entire nation into wickedness. But when you say he's going to be a, a root, a shoot of Jesse, it's almost a way of saying he's not just going to be of the line of David, he's going to be another David. And it says he's going to have the Spirit of God come on him and rest upon him. Uh, many commentators have pointed out, when you look at, at this, those first few verses, you know, the spirit of might and wisdom and understanding and the fear of the Lord, if you count all the things that it's the spirit of, there's seven. Sevenfold. Biblically, again and again, seven is fullness. Comprehensive. And, and what I want you to think about is this. In the, in, especially in the Old Testament, when the spirit comes on someone... It's not just like, ooh, and they got all fired up and excited. Like, you know, that they got inspired. But it means that they are supernaturally, divinely equipped to do something by the Spirit of God. When, uh, <clears throat> uh, when they were building the tabernacle, we studied this this summer. When they were building the tabernacle in the wilderness, just out of stuff that they got from the Egyptians, God put His Spirit on this man named Bezalel. And his spirit came on him and supernaturally enabled him to be a craftsman of craftsmen. In the book of Judges, there's a guy named Gideon who's, who's kind of a chicken. And the spirit of God comes on him to become a warrior to fight the Midianites. And the promise is, this man who's going to be another David, the spirit will come on him to do all that I've called him to do. He'll have it all. You want wisdom? He'll have wisdom, perception, understanding. He'll fear the Lord. He'll have might. He'll have counsel. And it's really a way of saying this. He will be everything a man ought to be. Intellectually. The way he understands everything. Emotionally. The way he responds to things. Feels things. And his delight is in the fear of the Lord. And everything that he does with his will, it will all be right. And then it says this, he's going to <clears throat> go to bat for justice. And we look, that, that overlaps with last week. He'll execute justice and righteousness. And here's what's great about that. That means that he will neither neglect the poor nor always rule in their favor. Uh, he won't be bribed by the rich, nor will he always box himself against them 
uh, for the poor just because they're poor. He will do what is just and right and fair. He really will be the only person to ever perfectly be like the symbol of justice. You know, blind as to physical eyes, but weighing what's true and just and right. Okay, that, that's what he's going to be. Now, here's the thing. We've seen that part. We've seen that advent. Think about this. When Jesus began his public ministry, one of the first things that happened was he went to this kind of hometown synagogue on the Sabbath. It said that was his, that was his custom. Um, if you think it's biblical to skip church, it says it was his custom every Sabbath to be in the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue and he's called on to come up and read the scripture reading. Now remember, no books, scrolls. And he comes up and he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he unrolls it to a later prophecy. And he reads this prophecy about the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and do this and do that. He rolls the scroll back up and he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. There it is. This man from the line of David. We know his dad and probably Mary too. The Spirit on him to do everything that he did. And he did those things. He was never duped. Isn't that great? Jesus could always look at you and know. And know what was real and what was true. It says no one ever had to explain a person to him. He knew people. And he went to bat for the marginalized. Now this is the Jesus in a way that it's easy to like. You know? Like in a culture that in many ways is pressing women down, he loved women purely, purely. But he loved them and went to bat for them. That's a big theme in the Gospel of Luke is that he cared for women when others didn't. He loved the poor. He was poor. Son of man has no place to lay his head. You have a house, I don't have a house. It's easy to like that Jesus. He's, he's taken the religious Pharisee types to the woodshed. Easy to like. The second advent feels different. Because it's, it's, it's extremes at the same time. Um, different world religions can look at the first advent and see things that are commendable. I mean, a lot of different people could, could hear things about, yes, yeah, speak justly do what's right, and say, yeah, that's great. Go to bat for the marginalized, that's great. But it's the things that the text says about the second advent that are tough. Um, What's the description? And here's the thing. The descriptions are simultaneously wonderful and terrible. They're not neutral. It is wonderful to the peg, and it's terrible to the peg. Now, what's wonderful? First off, you've got this, this complete renovation of the created order. Have you, have you ever heard the expression, nature red in tooth and claw? You ever heard that? Just talking about, it's a dangerous world out there. You know, a big dog might eat a little dog. Or a little dog might eat a cat. Or a raccoon might eat... Yeah, just, well, I'll stop. But you, you know what I'm saying is that it, you watch the nature videos, you watch National Geographic and... It's kind of heart-wrenching sometimes. It's a dangerous world out there. Nature red and tooth and claw reversed. At the advent, 
of this descendant of Jesse and of David, it's reversed. And it gives descriptions like this. This starts in verse 6. That animals that would never be found together except in just a swirl of attack and claws and teeth, it doesn't just say can be together, it says they dwell. One Hebrew scholar said that the verb that's there is not... It's not even just permanently living. It's like having a guest come stay with you. So, not just a sheep, but a lamb. You know, extra young, extra vulnerable, extra tender. Has the wolf over, like, to come stay with him. And, you know, not just a cow, and not just a calf, but the fattened calf has the bear come over. To live together. The bear likes the calf. The calf likes the bear. It's a reversal of what's normal. And it says that uh, the lion... Did you catch this? The lion eats what? Lions are strictly carnivorous. Eat straw like the ox. And then one of the most rattling extremes is it has children not only leading these wild animals. I mean, this really is where the wild things are. But you get children juxtaposed with what? Snakes. Poisonous snakes. If there are any two things that are never supposed to be in the same space, it's like toddler and snake. And biblically speaking, the reason this is so interesting is that way at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, when man sins and the curse comes on all the earth, part of the curse is what happens to this snake. He's going to crawl on the dust of the ground. And then this promise is given to Eve that he's going to strike your seed. He's going to strike him in the heel and your seed is going to crush his head. But there's going to be this hostility between the two of them forever. Now we we understand that to be the first promise of the coming of Jesus. This descendant of the woman and the seed of the serpent at war and the serpent being crushed. But if you just took those words on face value, it would mean what? Her children, her descendants, don't get along with the snake's descendants. Children and snakes don't mix. And there they are, juxtaposed in the text. But you don't just get that. What else do you get? Look in verse 9. It says that they... Now, it's hard to know, is that saying... They people, they animals, probably animals initially. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Um, At Lessons and Carols tonight, we will do something that's very traditional. We will start with the hymn, Once in Royal David's City, Bethlehem. And the last stanza says this. I'm going to read this so I don't mess it up. And this this is parsing out the two advents. Listen to this. Not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by. We shall see him. But in heaven, set at God's right hand on high, where like stars his children crowned all in white shall wait around. And, I, and, you know, I used to wonder, what does that mean, they'll wait around? I mean, is that a picture of everybody in heaven kind of, you know, it, it, waiting? No, it, it's not that sense. It's the sense of, we would call servers in a restaurant wait 
staff. Serving. It says they're all gathered around him in heaven, waiting, serving him, delighting in him, that in this way that fills their hearts with joy, his wish is our command. Now that's a wonderful picture. That that thing that happens in you when your child says, One of these days I'm gonna hug a polar bear. And you think, ah, oh, no, you won't. Because that would be a death wish. But you kind of deep down feel like, but man, I wish we could. Wouldn't that be great to give a bear a bear hug? I mean, they, they, they own the title, you know, the bear hug. What if you gave a bear a bear hug? And I'd really like to do that. What, what if that's the very promise is one day you will? But then it's terrible. What's promised is awful. Uh, look in the latter part of verse 4. It's just kind of going along here. He delights in the fear of the Lord. He's doing what's just for the poor and the meek. And about halfway through verse 4, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. That this branch of David... He'll make a violent world stop being violent. He'll be so wonderful that different tribes and nations and ethnicities that could never get along will gather around him and delight in him. And they'll be killing from his mouth. And, and, you know, I know that in hearing that you can go, well, but I think that that can be metaphorical. And this is just kind of, the Old Testament can sound this way. The book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, there's this figure that shows up almost at the very end, and he's riding on a horse. And you know how in the Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus, Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that's one of his titles. Listen to this. It's describing him. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. From his mouth with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Apostle Paul, in one of his letters, he writes this. He's writing about an enemy of Christ at the end. And here's how Paul describes that enemy, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, his advent. What do we do with that? Because here's the thing. Everything we're describing will be harnessed to the Messiah being perfect. Verse 5 says this, Righteousness shall be the belt of his weight. Faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Nothing will be over the top. Nothing will be unbalanced. But it will be extreme. Extremely wonderful and extremely terrible. Now, what, what, what are we supposed to do with all this? Um, you know, I mentioned this. We, we sing about him coming a lot during this time. You know, we just sang, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Uh, Last week we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, this longing for his coming. 
the next to the last verse of the whole Bible, and the last prayer of the whole Bible is what? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's good to sing about and to pray for and to want Jesus to come, but what are we mentally picturing that being like? Um, and I, I don't say this to be caustic or, or crass, but if our mental picture is anything manageable, the picture's false. That when Jesus comes in his second advent, the response cannot be neutral. It cannot be, that was your tradition, that was truth for you, uh, I, I choose not to have a religious tradition or I choose not to I have a different... It is to say, for all humanity, just as truly as the first advent happened just the way it was prophesied, when he comes, there is no neutrality. There's no blank response. It either is to you, at the most deeply personal level, bliss, wonderful, dreams coming true before your eyes, or nightmares. Horrible. And I would say this to you. If, if, you know, when I stand up here, and I hope this comes through, especially if you're visiting, I don't ever want to speak to this room as if everybody here is a Christian and everybody's made up their mind and everybody's convinced and this is just a nice little moral bunch. I mean, good grief, did you hear the confession of sin? We're not a nice little moral bunch. That's what that table's going to remind us of in a second. But if you are here and you say, you know what, I kind of like checking out about Jesus. I don't like the language of destroying his enemies with the breath of his mouth. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the world just needs rehabilitating? Or does the world need utter fixing? Did you read the sonnet by John Donne when you were in school? I think it's number 10 about death be not proud. And it ends by saying, death... Thou shalt what? Die. It's, it's awesome. It's saying, okay, death, you'll die. Is, isn't that what you want? And we could tease that out. Don't you want hunger to one day be hungry? I mean, don't you want loneliness to find itself banished and alone? Don't you want murder to finally be murdered? Don't you want depression at the end to be banished and made brokenhearted and sad and depressed? Don't you want fear at the end to become very afraid? I mean, that's what we want. And for that to happen, we can't have a rehabilitated earth. There must be an utter cleansing and bringing to justice forever. And the Bible never, ever shrinks from laying those cards on the table. And here's the beautiful thing. The promise is not just that that Messiah can be that terrible, but it's this. He is so good that if you will look to Him and take Him at His word, all that's terrible that we deserve can fall on Him for you He can go through the terror 
He can be on the receiving end of the divine terror so that you never will. And will do that for people who have kicked against him. Who finally say, have mercy on me. But the good news is this. If you trust him, that when he comes back, he will be his glorious, in the old sense of the word, awful, awe-inspiring self, but you will be not only safe, but blessed. And the earth really will be transformed. The wolf and the lamb really will live together. A child really could sit and pet the cobra and be fine. That's the world that we want. And let me say this too. I heard somebody say, that, and I'll end with this, that the loneliest verse in the Bible is Proverbs 14.10. You know what that verse says? Proverbs 14.10, let me read it so I don't mess it up. The heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. You know what that means? Is that even if you have a best friend or a sibling or a spouse who may really, really try to understand how you feel and what you think about something, we can't make them feel exactly what we feel. We can't get them to think and respond about something just the way we do as much as we want them to and as much as they want to. Don't you long for someone who knows you fully. This Messiah has the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel. He is the one that our hearts crave who will know me fully and with whom it is glory to be known fully. If you don't know that your life is safe with Him, I would say today, look to one who will come again and say, have mercy on me. Don't let me see your terror. Let your second advent be wonderful for me. I deserve what's terrible. I want what's wonderful. Have mercy on me. For those of you who have looked to the Savior in that way, you know what He says? Watch. Watch because I am coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, fully God, fully man, come quickly. Make all things right. We pray for your work in our midst and in Greenville, that for our city, your coming not be a day of terror, but a day of wonder, of dreams fulfilled, all things made right. We pray this in your name. Amen.